We're reading from uh, of 2 Samuel chapter 24, uh, the first 17 verses, and um, in the Pew Bible, that's page 234. So 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 17. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Arur, south of the town in the gorge, and they went on through Gad and on to Jazeth. They went to Gilead and the region of Tatim Hachi, and on to Dan Jan, and around toward Sidon. Then they went toward the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly, I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come upon you three years of famine in the land or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me. And my family. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Now, as I was preparing this passage this week, my first question was to ask, who on earth picks these passages? Why are we reading a passage like this? And then I realized, well, we pick these passages, and I wonder why do we pick passages like this? This is confusing. When I first read this passage, when I first read through the Old Testament, this passage actually stood out for me, especially as only a few chapters before. In the case of Bathsheba, where David had raped and murdered someone, nothing seemed to happen to him. And then here, David counts a few people, and 70,000 Israelites are killed. Now, a closer reading of the Bathsheba test would tell us, as we looked at last week, that it wasn't that nothing happened. There were consequences. Uh, and a closer reading of this, too, is going to reveal more to us. But I didn't like it when I read it. I didn't like who God was in the passage when I read it. And I thought this was a great passage to rip out or to burn or to put a great big line through and say, never read this one again. It doesn't fit with my idea of God. It's not who I want God to be. Now, looking deeper and getting a greater understanding of this passage, I will be honest with you, has not exactly put a great balm on my heart. The passage is still a troubling one. It does at least renew me and refresh me in the sense that it puts me in my place, even though I do not like being put in my place. So before we even begin, there's a lesson here for us. You're going to read things in the Bible that you don't like and you don't understand. Uh, plenty of these, and I can give you examples. When I do premarital counseling, people come to me and I say, listen, the, the husband and the wife, as they are relating to one another, there's two ways of viewing this relationship. Some view this as a role where the, the man has authority over the woman. And that is not my view, and it's not my view taken from Scripture, but it's still a view that's in Scripture. It's not what we teach and preach at this church, but it's possible to interpret Scripture that way. And if you're deciding for your marriage how you want to live, I would encourage people to read through those texts Talk to people who, who come from both points of view and make a reasoned, uh, submitted, biblical decision, not one which is based on preference. And yet nearly all the time, people will say, oh, we like the point of view that you're espousing of equality, which I do agree is correct, but I want people to submit to that because it's what they believe the Scripture says not because they like it more or it fits better with our culture and our time. I guess the question comes down to which is more important, understanding or submission, diagnosis of what is wrong or the ability to be healed. God's grace is always woven through the story of broken and sinful people, but not only do we need eyes to see it and ears to hear it, we need patience and submission to experience it. So we're going to look at this last chapter of 2 Samuel, which used to be one book, so it's really the last chapter of the whole of the works of Samuel, and we're going to look at three things. The sovereignty of God, the suckiness of sin, and the certainty of grace. The sovereignty of God, the suckiness of sin, and the certainty of grace. So let's begin with the sovereignty of God. Someone once told me that the doctrine of sovereignty is like a candy with a beautiful hard shell and a soft, warm, gooey center. 
let's see if that's really true, shall we? Uh, we need some back background to our text. Um, verse 1, it says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, why was God angry with Israel? If you go back to chapter 21, you'll see there's this song of David. In fact, what's happened is the Israelites, there's been a big rebellion. There's actually been two rebellions. One was led by Absalom. The other one was led by Sheba. And both of those eventually were put down. But God is angry at the people because they've rejected the king that he has given them. He appointed David as king. They joined in the rebellion of Absalom and Sheba. And we see that and we know that. It's hard to, to detect that from the text. But I've told you before that in Hebrew there's these things called sandwiches. And those sandwiches uh, reveal this to us if you understand the structure of the sandwich. So commentators can trace back the reason that God is angry with the Israelites to the fact that they rejected God as king. So here's the order of what happened. God gave the people a king. The people rebelled against the God's king. Then in verse 1, the beginning of verse 1, we see God was angry with the people. In verse, the second part of verse 1 and verse 10, God incites David and David sins greatly. Verse 13, God gives the choice of punishments, either a three-year famine, a three-month war, or a three-day plague. David chooses the plague. 70,000 Israelites die. It all seems so simple, right? Well, not really. If we read in verse 1, it says God incites David. If we read the same account in 1 Chronicles 21, and let me read that to you so as you can hear it, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a sentence. Oh, so is it God or is it Satan? And then we see in verse 10... David takes responsibility for this. David sinned greatly and was very foolish. So which is it? Did God incite David? Did Satan incite David? Or is David responsible for his own sin? And this is the problem of sovereignty. Nothing happens without God allowing things to happen. And from the position of God, sovereignty, it is God that has incited David, as we see in this chapter. From Satan's perspective, it is him that incited David, as we see from 1 Chronicles 21. And from David's perspective, he is responsible for his own sin, as we see in verse 10. Now, how can this be? How can we make sense of this sovereignty? Well, there have been people who have given a good shot at this. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, in his book, The Religious Affections, comes up with a beautiful platonic argument for how God's sovereignty can operate with our free will. But it is exactly that. It is a platonic argument constructed from a modern framework that could explain potentially how this is possible. That may make us moderns, who tend to like explanations and nice tidy bows on things, feel pretty good. Well, there's a mystery, and submitting I would say to the mystery becomes important. Submitting to this idea that some things are beyond our comprehension and our understanding. Postmoderns, of course, don't have any problem with the idea that there's a tension here that we can't resolve, that we can't actually land on the truth. So you younger folk here are probably sitting around and saying, I'm okay with that. Uh, but, but I would encourage you to, to note the difference between can't understand the full truth 
and the truth is just generally relative and all over the place. This is not a new problem. We would like to think that we're the wisest, smartest generation, that no other generation has ever thought through these problems. We have suddenly realized all the problems that are, that are inherent within the theology that we follow. Okay, let me just point out Romans 9. This is clearly the same problem that Paul has. The problem of sovereignty is not a modern or postmodern 21st century problem. In, in Romans 9, what's going on is Paul is making the point, listen, you did nothing. You don't deserve to be the chosen people. You're not worthy in your actions. You can't earn God's salvation. It's all grace. It's God that chooses it. And then he uses the example of Pharaoh. He says, God hardened and softened Pharaoh's heart as it suited God's purposes. And then he actually predicts what the people are going to say. Exactly what moderns and postmoderns might say. Well then, God must surely be the author of sin. And then Paul responds, and I'm going to read it, but I'm going to summarize it before I read it so that you'll hear it through that. Basically, Paul responds with, your pea-sized brain of the creature cannot fathom the depths of the creator. He puts them in their place. Who is the creature and who is the creator? So let me read that to you. Listen to Paul's argument. It's basically straight out of, well, let me put it another way. The 21st century modern and postmodern arguments are straight out of Romans chapter 9. Therefore, God has mercy on who he wants to have mercy, and he hardens who he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does the potter not have the right to take out the same lump of clay, some pottery for special purposes and some for common uses? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he, is, what if he did uh, this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, who he is preparing in advance for glory? Now, do I like this? I, I got to tell you, it, it's hard. We're still on the hard edge of sovereignty here. We're still on the shell of the candy. Who is this person here? He's acting like God. Oh, he is God. Have we got to the soft center of sovereignty yet? No. And there is still some more hard shell to come. Like I said, we did pack this, pick this passage, but I cannot tell you why. Perhaps the answer is that in God in his providential sovereignty decided this was the passage we needed to preach today. The suckiness of sin. David is end of life in here. He's still struggling with sin. He is still sinning greatly. And he is still being very foolish. One thing we can learn here is that gray hair is not a halo. There is still great evil in the heart. Can you imagine what it must be like to be old? I say that as someone who was surprised to hear that the young people went out after church a few weeks ago and didn't invite me. Because in my heart, I'm still young. But I look around at the gray hair in our church, at the Maggies and the Jeffs, the Gales, the Charlies, and the Glorias, the people whose lives are testimonies to their faith. 
And I, I hear them say, hey, my name is Jeff, Maggie, Gail, Charlie, Gloria. I've been a Christian for 60, 70, 80 years. Maybe that's a stretch, the 80. I am God's dearly beloved, but I sin greatly and I'm very foolish. Now, of course, that's relative to God, not to me or to you. Relative to you and to me, they are wise. But, in, but their understanding, their capacity to understand is, is that of the creature, not of the creator. Greek here is not a halo. And this is both a tragic truth, perhaps, this fact that we still sin right up until the end of our lives, but also a little assuring for, a reassuring for those of us who have gray, who don't have gray hair yet, or don't have as much gray hair yet. Right into old age, we still need to be carried spiritually like a babe in arms. We are never not dependent. I admire our elderly because they know this, not because they are free of sin. We should look at them not as models of virtue, but models of faithfulness who rest in the love and the sovereignty and the mercy of God. And in this case, David's sin is big. Even if it is not obvious to us, it is certainly obvious to Joab. Let me read verse 3 to you. By the way, Joab, if you're wondering, he's the guy who, when David said, I want you to pull back and let Uriah get killed, he says, okay. If you read through chapters 21 and the ones beforehand, you see when it comes to Absalom, he sort of does whatever he wants to do. This guy is a bloodthirsty general who's not afraid to get his hands dirty. And this is his response when David says, go and count the fighting men. Verse 3. But Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of the Lord the king see it but why does my lord the king want to do such a thing joab knows that this is a disaster waiting to happen so it might be hard for us to see but there are hints in here as to why it's a problem for a king to do this it would seem to us perhaps that there are good reasons to take a census if you're a military leader the strength of your army determines the extent of your power and your authority Remember the message from David and Goliath when we preached on that text and we said, might is right. The problem with our eyes on that one is that we couldn't see where the might was. The might was with God against Goliath. David was simply the vehicle that the mighty God used to crush the creature Goliath. In Exodus 30, we see that when you do a census, you're supposed to take a half shekel for every head you count. Give it to the temple. And the reason they did that was the same reason as we do the tithe. Do you realize when you give the tithe, you're saying, I belong. Every other suzerain king would say, I'm collecting a tax and I'm taking that money from you. God says, give me that money to show that you belong to me, to show that you recognize me and you worship me as the suzerain king, but then I'll pour that back uh, into into the temple and into your church. So that shekel was to say, the army doesn't belong to the king of Israel. The army belongs to God. So it is not David's army to take account of. David is counting the army in a way that says it belongs to me. He's counting the army as if to say, listen, I'll let God fit into my story. 
rather than, no, in submission, I will fit into God's story. David's committing the same sin as the people did. He's rejecting the true king. He's re the true king. He's rebelling against the suzerain. He's rebelling against Yahweh himself. He's rebelled against God just as the people in chapters 21 were rebelling against him. But I can't help when I come across and, and, I, and I see the depths of that scene on David to see the unoriginality, not the original sin, but the unoriginality of sin. Sin is so boring and pedestrian, so painful and repetitive, so addictive, and yet it seems so delightful when we enter into it. That little buzz that you get of realizing how grand you are because you counted the armies. And look at the, des the, the spiral that happens because of that. And you know, we're not any better, are we? We're always looking for validation outside of the fact that we are children of God, that we are in Him, and that our identity not needs to begin and to some extent end there. We should be saying, God, David should have been saying, thank you, God, when he looked back for all the things you have done, not look at how great I am. How many of us count our IRAs or 401ks and say, look at me. Look how responsible I am. Not thank you, God. Thank you, God, for preparing in my heart a way to move forward. Or when we get grades, get A's, or even great grades at school, how many of us turn around and say, wow, I'm pretty smart. Not thank you, God, for giving me this capacity. How can I use it to bless your kingdom? How many of us, when we get accolades or promotions, rather than being thankful and grateful for the work of God, turn around and think with the bee's knees. The thin line between gratitude and grandeur. If Israel had not sinned, the people would not have suffered. If David had not sinned, the people would not have suffered. The sins of the congregation hurt us all. The sins of the pastors and the leaders hurt us all. Sin is not a private matter. Sin hurts our families and our church. And at this point, you're probably saying, is there any good news in any of this, or are we still on that hard shell? When are we getting to the soft center of this candy? So let's move on to the last point, which is the certainty of, great, of grace. So we looked at the negative side, that we're all sinners, and that we hurt each other with our sin. What's the positive side? Well, we see in this text that God's Spirit brings conviction. David has grown. Remember in the story of David and Bathsheba? He was happily conscience-seared going on, living with Bathsheba, sleeping next to him. He was, he was happily living in his sin, wallowing like a pig in mud, until Nathan comes along and says, What are you doing? uses that, uh, that judge context for him as king to reveal to him what he's done. Here, it's David's conscience alone. It's not seared. He wakes up one morning and says, what have I done? God, God comes after his conscience realization, not before, like with Nathan. Now, God gives David three choices, three options for a consequence. Three years of famine, three months of war, or three days of plague. Now, I don't know how you react when you hear that. Is your reaction, oh, that's the Old Testament again. 
Or is that, that's what sin deserves? How do you react when you hear that? Does the seriousness of your sin resonate in your heart? Do you feel the same conviction that David felt? Do you realize that sin is a serious matter? Or can you just write this off as, oh, you know, in the Old Testament, it wasn't a big deal. Now things are just, you know, warm and fuzzy. Where do you fall, I guess, the question being asked here, is in Paul's argument of creator-creature. Do you elevate yourself to the creator? Do you decide that you get to define what's really sinful and not sinful? Do you, do you get to write it off to minimize it, to deny it, to push it away? Or do you get to realize that whether you like it or not as a creature, you're bringing harm on yourself, on the kingdom of God, and the people that you live with? And that that deserves consequence. Now David chooses the plague option. Why? Well, with a war, you're at the mercy of those who you fight. And David's been in enough wars to know that foreign kings, foreign armies can be cruel, malicious, take their victories out in harsh and spiteful ways. What about famine? Well, remember the famine in Egypt that brought Joseph to the house and then occurred to the house of Pharaoh and then occurred when he was in the house of Pharaoh. It is up to the wise management of people and also to the generosity of nations around. And so David's like, I don't want to rely on those things. So even in the midst of this dark, dark place, when David has repented, he said it is better to rely on God's sovereign mercy than to fall into the hands of men. It is better to rely on God's sovereign mercy than to, hand, to fall into the hands of men, even if that darkness has been caused by my own sin. So this is a lesson for all of us, to come back to God even in the midst of the mess up. You know, if you're in the middle of an addiction and you just want it to run wild, or... If you're suffering and you can't make sense of it, if you're confused at God or confused by God, if you're caught up in a massive uh, series of adulteries or, or embezzlement or cheating, it, no matter where you are in the midst of that, at some point when God convicts you, it's time to say, you know what? Let's turn around and face the consequences. Let's go back. Let's bring this out in the light. Let's, con let's allow the conscience of God uh, to work in me and let me take the consequences. Let me, let me at least deal with what I've done. Whether we like it or not, we're learning from David here that under God's wing is the only safe place to be. The consequence of sin is still horrible. 70,000 Israelites are dead. This is a consequence, not a completion of God's judgment. All rebelled. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of them deserve to die, as did David. They all deserve to die. This terrible, horrible, unnecessary tragedy was brought about by the sin of David and the sin of the Israelites. It was used by God. David wanted to know how many people are in his armies? 
God showed him how many people had to die to deal with his arrogance. Let me read verse 17, and we see David's response to this. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. The shepherd, I have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. He is truly contrite of heart. He's finally learned the lesson of who is the creator and who is the creature, what it means to submit. God demonstrates here in verse 16, which I'll read to you in a minute, his sovereign mercy. And the question we should be asking as creatures is why. Let me read it to you. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, a just and fair punishment, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. So the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David wanted to know how big his, his army was, so he counted them. And this is not the first time in Israel that the size of the army had been an issue. If you go back to Judges 7, when Gideon is taking on the Midianites, he starts with 33,000 troops. And this is what God says to him. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I can't deliver Midian into your hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. So he knows what's going to happen. If they send 33,000 troops to take out the Midianites, the Israelites are going to think it was them. Gideon will probably think it's them. So they pare it down. Anyone who trembles, it goes down to 10,000 troops. God says, still too many. So they pare it down again. Who drinks from their hand and who laps like a dog? They pare it down again to 300 people. God shows Gideon, just as he showed David, his sovereign power to bring about his victory for his people. Before we noted that all had rebelled, or all deserved death, both the Israelites and the people, David rebelled and was spared. Where's the completion of that judgment? He, we didn't read on from chapter 17, but the next thing that David does is build an altar and sacrifice on it an animal. The blood is spilt in the form of an animal on that altar. And, of course, we know that Old, sacri uh, that Old Testament sacrifices really did not atone for the sin, but they pointed to the one who did atone for the sin. They pointed to Christ, to Jesus Christ on the cross. God wins the ultimate victory for his people, not with David's army, not with 33,000 or 10,000 or even 300 of Gideon's troops. His victory is won through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you can't add anything to that. Don't go counting your army. His mercy is sovereign. And this is the sweet center. God cannot not bless us if we, in, if we are in Christ before God. Let me say that again, because it's the key here. 
God cannot not bless us if we're in Christ before God. God's sovereign justice is the hard part of God's sovereignty. God's certain mercy is the soft center. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, this is a hard text. It is one which we don't like because in the middle of it, in addition to the confusion and the hardness, is the fact that we need to confront the fact that we so often want to elevate ourselves to be creator and we so often want to minimize and look down upon our sin. Father, give us wisdom. Help us to be humble of heart. Help us to, to walk that thin line that sees that everything we are is because of you and give thanks for it. To be those who walk in your grace, in your certain sovereign mercy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.